I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Bubbling Adventure, a podcast all about kids and how educating them positively can impact their entire life as well as society. Each week, we're having conversations with guests on different themes, and our aim is to have open discussions, share different points of view, and learn in a non-judgmental way. Today, we're welcoming Rachel Daniels, who is a forensic psychologist. She will tell us how much your childhood can have an impact on your life, relationships, and reactions. It's very interesting to take a step back and actually try to understand how your previous experiences affect the way you make decisions today. The best way to support this podcast is to subscribe if you haven't already and write a review if you're listening from Apple Podcasts. But without further ado, let's begin. Hi Rachel, how are you? Good, I'm good Julie, thank you. How are you? Good, thank you for joining today. Oh, thank you for having me. Of course. Could you please introduce yourself? Of course, yeah. So um, I'm Rachel Daniels and I'm currently working as a forensic psychologist in training. Um, and I'm currently working in a forensic mental health hospital. So I suppose just expl explaining those complex words a little bit. A psychologist obviously understands the individual, um, trying to look at how they think, how they feel and how they behave. And then in terms of the forensic part is trying to understand, you know, why people are offended and, you know, what makes them behave in that way and trying to support them with those needs. And yeah, I'm currently working in a mental health hospital, um, which means they're both um, have a offending history but also mental health concerns as well. Right, so young people in trouble and you're trying to understand exactly what happened mm. and uh, like help them mm -hmm. as much as you can. Yeah, basically. A lot of the individuals that I work with have troubled pasts um, and that has led them to engage in behaviours that are against the law, um, mostly kind of violence or sexual offences and also led them to have you know, mental health problems such as like personality disorder or things like schizophrenia. And because of those two like joint problems, um, they found themselves in a forensic mm -hmm. mental health hospital. Um, and yeah, my job is to kind of support them with their behavior, their thoughts, their feelings, 
um, and try and change that behaviour so they can live, you know, a more fulfilling life, but also one that kind of abides by the laws. Yes, so it's also benefiting society, I guess. Mm. Yeah. And so what, what brought you to be a forensic psychologist in the first place? Yes, yeah, so I've been asked this question a few times, and I think originally I would always say, <laughs> like, kind of a standard kind of answer would be that I always really just enjoyed like forensic programs like I remember as a kind of a young adolescence really enjoying programs like the bill which I'm not sure if you know about actually it's just like a prison police program mm -hmm. but actually you know looking back now reflecting back onto my childhood I remember actually um I must have been about seven or eight and my auntie and uncle got uh, burgled and I remember kind of thinking like well why would anyone burgle somebody else and I just didn't really understand mm -hmm. Um, but I always remember like wanting to understand and wanting to know why. Um, and I think I always kind of reflect as well that I have like quite a, quite like a logical, like mathematical brain. And I'm always trying to like solve things and work things out. So I think even from that kind of young age, I always wanted to know, you know, what would, what would possess someone to engage in that kind of behavior and, you know, kind of trying to understand why they would do that. And, you know, thinking about it now, I think my upbringing was quite different to that, you know, I would say that I had quite a privileged upbringing. You know, I wasn't living in a mansion or anything, but, you know, my parents were both together, could afford to send me to like a good school, lived in a good area. And I think reflecting now, I was like, you know, what makes somebody so different to that? They would go into these measures to kind of burgle somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that always just kind of sparked my interest into people and then also like offending behavior. So that led me to go to university. Um, and study psychology and criminology. Nice. Um, and while I was there, I also did, um, I worked in the police as a special constable. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so that gave me a bit more of an insight into it as well. That's nice. So quite early on, well, before uni, you already knew what you wanted to do. So that's good because a lot of people are still unsure, I think, at, at this age. So it's quite, it's quite cool. And, like, it's mm. very interesting, actually. Uh, so what, what is it that you really love about it? Um, I suppose the thing I like, it kind of sounds a little bit generic in terms of every day is different, but I suppose the other thing is that, you know, I just find it fascinating to understand people and I'm always trying to really like analyze and understand why someone behaves in that certain way. And I just find it really rewarding in terms of like improving people's like quality of life. So, and don't get me wrong. It's not huge changes. Sometimes it can be really small changes that you have to really look for, mm -hmm. but yeah, just enhancing their life. And, and I think by working with the offender, you can then support more victims. So if you, if you support one offender that could save, you know, 10, 20 victims say, that's true. So I always find that part rewarding. Yeah, no, it's true. And so how, how does it work exactly? Because so when you're working with someone, how, mm -hmm. you know, does, do they allocate a special amount of hours for special cases or how, you know, like, how is it? Mm. I don't know how it works exactly. Yeah. So I suppose that's kind of our role. So as the psychologist, when someone, you know, you meet the person for the first time, really about doing a really comprehensive assessment. So really trying to understand what their risk is. So, you know, if their risk is of general violence, sexual violence, if they've got any risk to themselves, like self-harm, or drug use or problems in relationships mm -hmm. you would then be looking at like what their need is so what actually what kind of therapy or treatment would best suit them you know what their motivation is because a lot of people aren't even motivated to to do any work so you'd be looking at that as well 
Um, and then also if there's any kind of what we call responsivity needs. So if they've got a lower IQ or if there's any concerns that you would also need to take into consideration. And then doing that comprehensive assessment allows us to understand what treatment is best for that individual. Right. So even the initial diagnosis mm. can take weeks, literally. Oh yeah, weeks, mu years sometimes. Like I've got patients now. So wow. there's a, quite a difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist. So a psychiatrist is somebody that diagnoses and is like a doctor that pre prescribes medication. So they usually do the diagnosing. So they might then say that someone's got schizophrenia or they've got personality disorder. And we can assist with that by doing assessments and supporting that clinical judgment. But we would normally work with the diagnosis rather than actually diagnosing. That's usually the psychiatrist. But yeah, I mean, those diagnoses take years and, and people have different opinions. So I've got patients that, you know, have originally been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And then years later, another psychiatrist thinks it's more kind of schizoaffective disorder. So just different elements and different people's perspectives. Mm. I see. And so, yeah, is, for example, skin of schizophrenia amongst the, the most common cases or like what would be the really the, the thing that you see most of the time? Yeah. So I suppose at the moment, most of my service users have paranoid schizophrenia or they would have a personality disorder. Um, so paranoid schizophrenia, they often hear like voices or see hallucinations or other delusions. And that can often result in them then being violent because they're hearing something or seeing something that's not real or they're believing something. Mm -hmm. And that can often result in them being violent. So they might believe that somebody's after them or believe that they're, you know, someone's going to kill them. And actually they kind of attack in order to kind of protect themselves. Um, so that's quite a common, common case. I see. Yes. And so how do you assist in these instances? Do you do some kind of exercises? Is it just like a talking therapy or does it depend on the patient? Yes. Yeah, so most of psychology is talking therapies, um, but it really does depend on the service user and how kind of well they are um, and how kind of motivated they are to change. So if you have someone in that's still having those hallucinations, you know, they're not going to really want to be engaging in any treatment or even kind of understand what's going on, let alone wanting to do any therapy. So then you'd be working with a psychiatrist to provide medication in order to kind of support those symptoms. Um, and then my job would be to kind of provide some stabilization therapies to try and make them as much as stable as possible. And then providing more advanced therapies such as like CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy, For hearing those voices um, so trying to change their thoughts about those voices um, and understanding that you know what they're perceiving is not you know in the real world mm -hmm. and making them feel less threatening yeah that must be tough <laughs> and mm. I, I assume that you also have to really build trust at the mm. beginning yeah I mean I always I kind of always say this and I think that's you know you can have all the kind of therapy knowledge and everything like that But I think, you know, I don't, I don't have a percentage, but I always kind of say around like 70% of it is around your relationship with them. Like I just think building that trust, showing empathy, showing compassion is, yeah, is half the battle. I think a lot of the individuals come from homes where, you know, they haven't had a stable upbringing. 
they maybe mistrust people, they feel like rejected and abandoned. So actually, a lot of my job is trying to actually break those and provide that care and that kind of validation and support. Mm -hmm. So basically, the long term goal is to have them get better mm -hmm. and then slowly preparing them to go back to society and live a normal life. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, providing them enough therapy that they feel they're not going to be a risk to themselves or to others in the community. And then they can live in the community without. I mean, we're not going to solve all the problems. They might still hear voices, but that those voices wouldn't be at risk enough to for them to harm themselves or others. Right. And they would still have therapy, right? In the community. Yeah, they're not like completely just like outside without any boundaries they would still have to come to therapy right yeah so the 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 ideal situation is that they then kind of have more and more freedom and less and less therapy but that is kind of integrated back into community so they'd have community mental health services involved when they're back in the community right is there any patients that really you know marks you and you You want to share maybe like a story? Um, I suppose there's kind of a couple of people that have, um, so personality disorder. So personality disorder is quite different to kind of mental illness is in terms of like, there's not, you know, medication or a magic wand that kind of support their disorder. So personality disorder is really, you know, we all have a personality, but they have traits that are more problematic and they um, affect their life um, in kind of pervasive ways so yeah there's a couple of patients that I've got that you know have quite severe personality disorders so they have they go through all the treatment and they work on you know offense focused work so they'll go through um, sex offender treatment programs for oh, months you know 18 months two years and then they come out the other side and they've completed the the intervention and they've learned the right words and they understand you know what the therapy was about but how do we test that that is actually you know worked because they can say the right words but how do we test that actually you know that therapy has reduced their risk especially if it's related to sexual violence um, because it's a huge risk to let somebody that's committed a sexual offense back into the community And how do you really prove that, especially when they're, they're still living in a, in a hospital? Yeah, so they maybe don't have all the triggers that you have outside, right? Exactly. And that's what's so hard is because you're in, a, you're in a team and you kind of have to make these, you know, recommendations and suggestions of what you do with somebody. Um, obviously taking in, into account their ideas as well. But how do you really test those risks in a hospital environment? But also there's a lot of people that are very risk adverse. So you do get people that have, you know, been in, in forensic hospitals for, you know, I've got two patients that have been in for over 30 years. Wow. And I think the misconception is that actually sometimes that mental health hospitals are kind of the easy option. So I don't know if you've seen, you know, on like the media stories, you know, it'll say like someone's got diminished responsibility for murder. So they're sent to a mental health hospital rather than prison. Mm -hmm. And that's often seen in the media as like the easy way out. But actually like in a prison sentence, you know, you're given say 25 years, you serve 15, you have a date that you get out. Whereas when you're in a mental health hospital, the only way to get out is to prove that you're well. <laughs> so it's a lot harder. It can take even longer, yeah. Yeah. I, I often put myself in their shoes and like, how do you prove that you're well enough to be released? Like, 
what do you, what kind of hoops do you have to go through to prove that? And especially when you're in a situation that's not the same as the community, how do you prove that you've learned enough to, to be released? Hmm. Yeah, that, that must be a very tough thing to decide and also, yeah, very time consuming. Yeah, and, and I think that's what's so hard is that, like with these two guys that I'm talking about, that, you know, they've been in such a long time that a lot of people just kind of are that risk adverse and kind of say, well, you know, we don't know that they've changed, so we can't let them out. But then, you know, what happens then? Do they just stay in forever? Hmm. So, yeah, it's quite, it's quite hard. Yeah, it's, it's not an easy job for sure. No, and... So they all have a psychiatrist that's their kind of what we call responsible clinician. And that's it's their decision to let them out. So, you know, we can make recommendations as the psychologist, but they're the ones that are fully responsible. So, you know, they can take on your opinion, but they're the ones that will get the backlash if anything happened. You know, if that individual was released and another offence occurred, the questions would be asked of why that person was released. Hmm. Yes. And I was also wondering, actually, like what, life is inside mm. do they have visitors do they have you know like kind of like a garden mm -hmm. activities or how does it work so in um, mental health hospitals they're kind of given categories so like kind of high medium and low secure so high secu high security would have not much freedom at all they have like no like access to cutlery and to kitchens and any kind of risk items mm -hmm. because of their risk of violence yes. usually Um, they wouldn't have access to anything like that. I currently work on low secure. Um, so they have access to the kitchen. They have a garden they can go to whenever they want. They all have their own bedroom with a kind of, I say it en suite, but it, it's not like a fancy hotel en suite. It's, you know, a, a stainless steel toilet um, and shower cubicle. Um, but yeah, they all do have their own room. So in terms of that compared with prison, you know, in prison, a lot of people are sharing rooms with other people. Um, so I suppose in terms of a mental health hospital, they you know, do have a little bit more freedom as to some extent and a little bit more luxury in terms of where they're staying. Mm -hmm. But also, yeah, of course, you don't want to put the other patients in danger. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I've had this conversation with other people in terms of like, again, you know, other people's perspective of... Um, you know, prisoners is that, you know, why are they given TVs? Like, why do they have PlayStations and things? And I suppose my, my kind of thoughts around it is it's, it's not a punishment within a punishment. They're in here because of something they've done wrong and they're in here to kind of be rehabilitated. You know, part of having things like TVs and PlayStations is a reward based. So it's not to say that if they don't do something that they might lose that privilege, but if we didn't give them any privileges, it just feels so punitive and also how would we have anything to work with if they have nothing you know that would lead to like riots and you know it'd just be not it'd be inhumane yeah so for example if someone refuses to like participate in the sessions you can ba basically like remove mm -hmm. video games or tv yeah to, to some extent i suppose it really depends on how needed that therapy is so if i was saying that this therapy is needed for their in order to move forward, then we'd be looking at things that, you know, taking, taking things away, but not in so much of a punitive way. So it'd be more like, you know, unless you engage in this therapy, you can't move forward. So you couldn't have things like unescorted leave. 
So um, unescorted leave is leaving the, leaving the hospital on their own to go into the community for specific reasons and specific periods of time. Mm -hmm. So this is for the low security, right? Yes, yes, mostly low security. Some medium have it, but mostly it's low security. Um, so it might be that, you know, an individual has three hours per week, one hour to go shopping, one hour to, you know, go for a walk and another hour for something else. And that would be stopped if they weren't engaging in the, you know, work that was needed to reduce their risk. Mm -hmm. And did you ever have a, a case where they didn't, like, they tried not to come back? Um... No, I actually haven't. I, I, when I, I worked in a prison before, um, I, wasn't, I, wasn't, I was working there at the time, but I wasn't actually on shift. And he only had two days left of his sentence. And he was on a, I think he might have gone to hospital. He only had two days left. And he, yeah, he opened the door and ran for it. Oh. But they, um, they caught him pretty quickly. But yeah, he actually got an extra four months, I think, for that. So Yes, of course. It, it wasn't the smartest idea, bless him. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, no, I, I suppose the guys I'm working with at the moment, um, they're all kind of really engaging in their treatment. They've um, often been there a long time and they've worked their way down to low security. So I suppose for them, you know, running away just wouldn't be worth it. And they can kind of see that. Mm. Yes. But it's definitely a risk. It's definitely something we have to think about. Yes, for sure. And yeah, like what you do if they don't come back. And yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like, so your job is really to understand what happened in their life and, you know, like what led them here, what happened exactly. And so, yeah, definitely. you know, it's the, the famous question, nature or nurture. So I think you, you, you have mm. a lot of things to say about yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, this is a question that's always asked of psychologists. And I remember even being asked it at like A-level and stuff. Mm. But I suppose we all have like nature kind of traits. You know, we all have a personality traits. We all have temperament, you know, whether we're a bit more sociable, a bit more shy, a bit more passive. And we all have like genetical differences as well. Um, and I think that obviously plays an impact. Like that impacts in the way we deal with stress, the way we deal with traumatic experiences. That might make us a bit more sensitive to trauma. It may, might make us a bit more vulnerable. But, you know, I think that's one part of it. But I think, you know, hugely, I, I can't think of many patients in my whole time that haven't gone through some kind of traumatic experience or like psychological factor. So like, you know, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, neglect, Um, so anything we call kind of like adverse childhood experiences. So something in childhood that's gone wrong, that's been traumatic for them and that the, the way their needs have not been met. So they have to create these kind of coping strategies to deal with that. Hmm. And I, I can't honestly can't think of many patients that haven't had that kind of history. And sometimes it must be very hard as well to to identify and like really have them talk about exactly what happened to them, I guess, because mm -hmm. also we know with trauma, some people even forget, like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they really have no recollection of what happened mm -hmm. because, you know, they're like being protected. Yeah, they haven't actually processed it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I think it must be tough and to just like go super deep until you figure out and for most of them, it must not be like just one thing, but then more like a succession of events that led them where they are yeah yeah definitely and i think that's the main difference i've i've worked like with children so you know adolescents that are kind of like 
15 to 18 and now I work with adults and I find that when working with children you know the trauma is a lot more raw it's happened you know probably within the last 10 12 years so they're able to recall that a lot more and also they haven't been in services and you know talked to therapists about their trauma over and over again so they're actually a lot more kind of engaging to talk about it and like you can almost have that kind of like you're the first person to talk about the trauma and help them you know to kind of process that whereas working with adults you know i'm working with people that are like now 50 and their trauma was like 40 50 years ago and Hmm. you know they've gone over that and over that with so many different psychologists and psychiatrists and everyone else who's asked about it that actually like even their memories of that is blurred now and then the trauma so long ago it's so hard to work with someone where yeah the traumas happened so long ago and it's affected their whole life because you know when that traumatic experience has happened and they've dealt with that in the best way possible but that's often led to what we call like maladaptive coping strategies so you know coping strategies but that are not the most sociable or um, positive so things like self-harm substance misuse and that's then in, been ingrained for say yeah 45 years so it's very hard to work with someone and try and undo all that of course, because also if you say something so many times, actually lose it loses meaning. You know, it's like yeah, definitely, yeah. That must be very challenging, yeah. but then also also very you know inspiring and fulfilling as a job, because then you you really make a difference. You're helping people who really need help. Yeah, definitely, and I think that's the most rewarding thing is to kind of work with somebody that you know has had this kind of pretty horrific uh, upbringing and you know throughout their whole lives then led to different problems and you know I, I suppose I always have the kind of mindset that you know somebody doesn't want to have that lifestyle a lot of people kind of think well they chose that life and they chose to commit the crimes but you know I always kind of think well actually it was their you know their upbringing and what led them to do that you know they they want to have a, a good life they've just gone around it in kind of anti-social ways mm. Yeah, it's, I, I think it goes way deeper than just choice. And it's more also just, I can imagine, you know, because it's also linked for some of them, I, I guess, for, you know, education and how mm-hmm. also when you don't have, for example, a good example, mm-hmm. then, I mean, you must like want to react some way. And I guess like, right or wrong is blurred from the beginning. Oh, 100%. Yeah, like, especially, so I used to work in a a prison for young people. So yeah, they were like, I think they could have been up to 12. But mostly we got about 15 year olds. I remember one of them, I spoke to her mom, and and she was literally like, Oh, um, what you mean? She's, you mean, now she's in prison, I won't get her disability funds, like, and she was kind of more upset that she wouldn't get the funding for the disability, rather than her daughter of 15 years old has just gone to prison. Hmm. So you know, when you're like, what? what kind of upbringing was was that you know like for her mum to not care that she's now in prison at 15 you know what kind of life did she have and and you know at that age to have already committed quite a serious violent offense you know what kind of upbringing did she have hmm, that's tough and who's really responsible for that exactly and yeah i think sometimes it must be hard also to so for some of them you know they've been doing some horrible things but then mm-hmm. can you really blame them? Like, I don't know. It's it's such a tough question because, mm-hmm. yeah, obviously it's it wasn't right. But I guess also sometimes mm-hmm. in their mind, they they wanted to do right. They just didn't know how to. 
exactly yeah like they're a child at the end of the day like they i mean i remember another guy that took his children to go shoplifting and they his children were six years old so you know by the age of six they were already committing thefts from shops with their father so you know they were taught that that was right you know they don't have moral development at that age so for them that was right no and also i mean you trust your parents your sticks you know it's, yeah. it's even you know even after sometimes it's hard to not to trust your your parents so i guess uh, uh yeah yeah and i think that's what's really interesting is that so the age of criminal responsibility changes in different countries Um, so I'm can't, I can't, a lot of European countries are a lot older. I think Norway is like 16, but in England um, and the UK, it's it's 10. So anybody over the age of 10 can be found criminally responsible for an offence. So if someone commits an offence at 10, it's nothing to do with their parents. You know, we don't you know we don't prosecute the parents. Um, we prosecute the child at 10. And there are no you know like investigations or. I mean, there is. There, there would be like social services would be involved and of course look into mm -hmm. like the upbringing of the child and you know if anything needed to be into that but the the responsibility is still with that child if they are over 10. And so does this investigation and like if the parents are found sort of responsible is that influencing the decision? Um, no 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 so it's literally solely on the child's responsibility if they're over 10. Mm, okay. Yeah so interesting. <laughs> yeah interesting. And so is there any advice that you would like to share? I suppose going into psychology, it's just, it's a long journey. But for me, I think it's worth it. I think it's about, you know, get all the experience you can and kind of getting those voluntary jobs um, and trying to really understand different service users and, and their experiences. Um, in terms of general advice, I suppose, you know, it's, it's about being compassionate to others, trying to understand rather than just judge. You know, you never know what someone's gone through and, And usually, you know, well, always, if someone behaves in a certain way, there's a reason for that. And like, yeah, I suppose I really recommend reading around like the adverse childhood experiences. Anybody, you know, would benefit from having information around, you know, what are adverse childhood experiences and how do they impact on individuals' development, you know, not just psychologists. Yes, actually, I wanted to ask, Like, how can we recognize that someone might need help? Um, I suppose looking at what their behavior is and trying to understand, like, you know, if someone doesn't do something that we would typically define as normal is trying to understand why and then signposting them to different support networks. So, you know, the NHS provides what's called IAPS, so um, psychological therapies for you know, people with depression, anxiety, um, and just signposting to different like psychological support. Um, but I suppose, yeah, in terms of all of us, just looking at people's behavior and trying to kind of understand and be compassionate towards them and yeah, signpost. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, thank you so much. It's giving me a lot of, uh, of things to, to think about now. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very, it's very interesting, actually. And yeah, I think we should all try to, you know, go deeper yeah. and not just assume we know what they've been through and they just chose they're like the Chose way they live life. their life and yeah. there are like so many other aspects that are mixed together as, uh, together and it's very very confusing so yeah, yeah. interesting mm. well thank you so so much for joining thank you no, thank you for having me julie i really appreciate it thank you so much for listening feel free to share if you think it might be helpful to someone you know 
If you enjoyed this episode, then please make sure to write a review if you're listening on Apple Podcast and subscribe if you haven't already. That's it for me. See you soon with the next episode. And in the meantime, have a lovely day. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.